Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School Hour. And we are doing our lesson that we're going to present on September 18th of 2022. Again, we are looking at some things in and around the life of Daniel. This is a very pivotal moment here as the saga continues here. Uh, Belshazzar the king, the last king of the Babylonian Empire, and when you think about uh, Babylon, you're talking about something that is in the area of modern-day Iraq, okay? And um, that empire was about to come to an end. In fact, the story that we've been reading is the last night of the empire, and it also is the last night, the last few hours of the life of the king. And so it's kind of an ominous thing to think that these people are in a, in a banquet hall and they're throwing a big party. And um, it says that uh, Belshazzar there had a thousand of his officials. And I would assume that that would also, um, in addition to that, there would be, you know, wives and concubines are mentioned in the text. At least his are. And um, so there, there's a good, good group of people here. And they are thinking about the uh, gloom and the doom, the pall that is kind of hanging over the city of Babylon because the Medes and the Persians have allied and they are coming and advancing there to the city of Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian Empire. And they are all around the city. They've laid siege to it. Nothing in, nothing out. But never fear, everything's going to be okay. Throw a party and forget about it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Except they really didn't believe they were going to die tomorrow. It's just an excuse. Eat and drink and be merry. Why? Because the walls of Babylon were uh, one source I read said 20 feet thick. And um, nothing could go over them and nothing could go under them. And so uh, they were safe inside. They didn't really need water because the Euphrates River flowed through the city and it flowed under the walls and uh, down the middle, the heart of the city. So plenty of water there. And then they had a food supply. Uh, they're kind of modern day preppers, I guess, that would last them 20 years. And so um, they could outlast any siege that uh, Darius the Great or sometimes called Cyrus the Great, was uh, going to throw at them. Little did they know. And so while they are enjoying themselves, Belshazzar has the great idea, let's uh, go get the treasures that came out of the temple in Jerusalem. And these are the treasures that we looked at in the book of Exodus, for example, and all of those things that would be used in the worship of Yahweh, the holy God, and they were going to go bring them in. Nebuchadnezzar had brought them in when he besieged and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And so Belshazzar calls for them. So are they getting ready to worship God? Not on your life. They start drinking out of them and they start praising and raising their glasses, these holy uh, fixtures to gods of stone gods of wood and um, idols and praising and honoring them. 
So while they are doing that, then Belshazzar looks and is absolutely terrified when he sees what appears to be a hand, but it's not attached to anything else. And I would assume it's much bigger than a typical human hand. And it begins to write in the plaster on the walls in the banquet hall. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. And he has no idea what it means. I don't know if it was maybe written in a language he wasn't used to, in a script he wasn't used to. Maybe it was uh, hieroglyphics or Hebrew or something. I don't know. Something like that. But he couldn't read it and he certainly couldn't interpret it. So he has called, as you remember, all of the astrologers and the soothsayers and the uh, wise men, the Chaldeans to come in. And anybody who can read this and give me its interpretation will be third in the kingdom. And remember, third in the kingdom because um, Nabonidus was the true king and he was Belshazzar's father. He was out on uh, adventures and excursions, fighting battles, uh, making deals with people and all of that type of stuff, gathering treasure. And so while he's gone, he appoints his son, Belshazzar, to be the ruling uh, uh, king while he's away, apparently. So that would be third in the kingdom. That's as high as you could be without deposing Nabonidus or Belshazzar, and that's not going to happen. And of course, that is going to mean nothing. The promotion, the rank, third in the kingdom, there's not going to be a kingdom in a very short period of time. And this handwriting on the wall is not necessarily making something clear to Belshazzar. People say, I need to see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, well, remember, Belshazzar had no idea what it meant. He couldn't read it, and he certainly couldn't understand it. So it didn't make anything clear until the man of God came. And so there is the title of the lesson today, When All Else Fails, Call the Man of God. It's hard to say call the preacher, but uh, call the man of God. And uh, this guy has had no use for Daniel. This guy has had no use for God. In fact, he is in the midst of actually blaspheming him until the handwriting on the wall comes. Well, he can't ignore that. Everybody saw it. He's got to address the issue, and he's terrified by it. And you remember the description in last week's lessons that uh, the joints in his hips became loose, and his knees began to knock together, and uh, he is absolutely terrified by all of this. So this is the story that continues on. Now, the Medes and the Persians are, uh, by the way, the Persian, this is the beginning of the Persian Empire, uh, Persia is modern-day uh, Iran. So you've got Iran and Iraq. And those of you who are old enough, you can remember back in the, um, I think it was the 80s, wasn't it? That Iran and Iraq were involved in a war, Saddam Hussein against the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And uh, they've been fighting for a long time. Those two nations do not like each other. They're kind of artificial nations today. They were uh, set up, the whole Middle East thing was kind of set up after World War I and uh, then also refined a little bit after World War II. And uh, they're a very tribal people in that area. And also, while we may say, well, they're all Muslims, 
That's kind of like maybe Muslims saying we're all Christians. Well, are we? Certainly a difference between Mormons who claim to be Christians and Southern Baptists or Church of Christ or Presbyterians or Roman Catholics or something like that. But all of those would be called Christian, wouldn't they? And Muslims are the same way. They have their various groups and denominations and people that they follow, mainly people. Uh, They have Shiites and Sunnis and all of those different types of Muslims. Well, I don't remember which is which, but um, in Iran, there's one type of Muslim, and in Iraq, there's a different type of Muslim, and boy, they really do hate each other, and they fight each other, and so this has been going on a long time, that uh, in this story that we're reading, there's a war that's going to take place, and Iran is going to conquer Iraq, or the Persians are going to conquer the Babylonians or Chaldeans, if you have a King James Version. And so uh, this is long before Muhammad had ever been born or thought of. So th- this whole thing kind of is a, an inter-tribal, Middle Eastern type of war and a fight for territory. Now, Persia would win in this case. And the Persian Empire really lasted a long time in various phases. Um, Alexander the Great is the one who finally conquered the Persian Empire. And then, of course, he was conquered by the Romans. So there you go. You're, uh, all you wanted to know about history, but really didn't uh, care about all that much. But that's the background. That's what's happening here. And so uh, we'll pick up and we'll begin to read in our text. And so um, when this situation comes up, whoever can read this and interpret it, you know, third ruler in the kingdom, it never entered his mind to call Daniel. And so uh, let's begin reading now. Daniel 5, 10 through 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, sounds similar to the current king's name, doesn't it? But it's a little bit different. Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. Okay, so let's stop there. That's an interesting little twist and a break in the story. So this woman comes out called the queen, identified as the queen in this place. And uh, she has heard everything that is said and uh, the quandary that they're all in. What in the world happened? What does it mean? What are we supposed to do? You can just imagine everything that comes up. So she comes out, and uh, uh, she apparently cares for Belshazzar, 
and is related to him in some way. And so uh, she comes out and tells him about a man named Daniel. And Daniel, of course, is the key to all of this. So point number one, God had an unlikely witness, an unlikely witness. You know, um, when I study the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, which some people just skip over, but it's really uh, quite interesting if you look into it, you find some very unlikely people in that genealogy. There was a woman who lived in Jericho. And when Joshua sent spies over to Jericho to check things out, they ran into a woman named Rahab. And Rahab was uh, a prostitute. And for some reason, Rahab hid these men and protected them when the authorities were coming to look for them. And she was rescued out of the fall of Jericho. And interestingly enough, she ends up where? In the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't think that if you were to ask me without knowing the Bible or anything like that, who I would put and who would be, what kind of person would be in the genealogy as an ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I probably wouldn't put a prostitute. That's an unlikely thing. You ever notice how the Bible loves to kind of throw those things in? You also find in the genealogy of Jesus, for example, a woman named Ruth. Well, when we read the book of Ruth and we find out her story, we find that there was a man named Elimelech in the Bible, and uh, he uh, had a, a wife, Naomi, and they had uh, kids, and uh, Malon and Kilion, and there was a famine in the land. They lived in Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, Bethlehem means house of bread, but there wasn't any. And so they decide to leave. They just couldn't wait it out. And they go to Moab, where there was rain, where the crops would grow. And you remember that they thought that they would just stay there temporarily. But, well, Elimelech died, and Malon and Kilion died. So here you have... Um, you know, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, three widows. And Naomi says, I'm going back to the land I, I belong in. And uh, Orpah stays in Moab and Ruth goes back. Now, when you read in the Bible about the Moabites, they were the product of the incest between Lot and his daughters after they left Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Moabites were not particularly well thought of in Israel and among the Jews. And yet Ruth the Moabitess is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think if you ask anybody back in Old Testament times, when Messiah comes, who will he be? Probably people would say he'll be of the seed of Abraham, but I doubt they would have thought that he would have a prostitute and a Moabitess <coughs> in his family tree. God likes to do things to sort of shake up stuff. He likes to do the unlikely so that the spotlight is put upon him. Now, there are plenty of times when he works in the normal things. I had open heart surgery last November, and I'm you know, doing pretty well right now as I speak to you. Can I claim that as a miracle? Well, yes and no. 
I mean, on one hand, I believe God did heal me. Did he do it miraculously? Well, actually, he used normal means. He used a surgeon, and uh, uh, there's a part of a cow inside of my chest right now, and uh, things had to heal up, and I had to exercise and do all of that. So God works in normal ways. The sun rises, the sun sets. Um, you know, we see the constellations, um, weather patterns, the seasons, all of that. God works most of the time in very normal ways. But there are enough times where he begins to work in unusual ways. Consider even the Lord Jesus himself. When uh, Nathaniel is told, come see the Messiah, uh, he's Jesus of Nazareth, and his first thing is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? God did something unusual. The Messiah wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't, you know, with trumpets and fanfare or anything like that. All of this is different. So who is it that is the witness for God in this story? Well, it's a woman that's called a queen. And uh, she hears the words of the kings and his lords. She comes to the banquet hall and uh, she spoke and said, O king, live forever. So she is subordinate to uh, Belshazzar. And don't let your thoughts trouble you and let your uh, countenance change. And why did she get involved? Who was this queen? Okay, we'll answer it like this. Well, she's evidently old enough to know about and to remember Daniel and Daniel's interaction with King Nebuchadnezzar. So that means she is uh, probably a good 20 years older or so than Belshazzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for 20 years. Who is she? Well, a couple of um, suggestions here. She was probably most likely the queen mother, the queen mother. In other words, she was probably Belshazzar's mother, married to Nabonidus. Or some have suggested she might have even been a widow of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not horribly unusual to see a woman who outlives her husband by a couple of decades. Um, you know, so she could be a part of his um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's harem and she is still living now, and so Belshazzar would be her grandson. And uh, if she's married to Nabonidus, then Belshazzar would be her son. Either way, you can see why she would want to be involved as a good mother or grandmother would, and she uh, is old enough to remember times past. She doesn't appear to be a believer in God. She even says in there he has the spirit or wisdom of the gods, and so that doesn't sound... Uh, real promising, but she does recognize there's something different about his God. She calls him the holy God, right? The spirit of the holy God is in him. Doesn't mean that she is a follower of Yahweh. It doesn't mean that she sees him as the one true and living God, but maybe one of many. But there's an unlikely witness. You know, you may be an unlikely witness for the Lord. You never know. There's an evangelist that shook two continents for Christ, uh, Dwight L. Moody. And Moody was not a very well-educated man at all, and he butchered the king's English, and yet uh, he shook Europe and North America for the cause of Christ. 
Do you know how Mr. Moody came to know Christ? A shoe salesman named Mr. Kimball in Chicago is one of the ones who led him to the Lord. And so uh, a, a shoe salesman in Chicago, and that's how it all started. You never know what your witness is going to do and what impact it's going to have. The person that you are talking to, discipling, maybe even teaching now, who knows, in another 10, 15, 20 years, they may be the next Spurgeon or something like that. So um, unlikely witnesses. Number two, God stirred up a memory. He's good at that, isn't he? He stirs up a memory. How many times in the Bible does he say, remember, remember, remember? He wants us to think. Don't check your brain at the door when you come to church. Don't check your brain at the door when you are reading the Word of God. Engage your mind because the Bible says we're to love the Lord with all of our, and he lists several things, but he says in there also with our mind. We're to be scholars. We're to be logical. We are to be thinking about all of this as we look through the Word of God. And we are to remember things. I think sometimes people have trouble with the Bible because they read something in, oh, I don't know, I'm reading in Second Kings right now, and then they get to another part, and uh, it relates to Second Kings, but they don't even put the two together. And the Bible's like a jigsaw puzzle. There are pieces in every book that need to be put together so you get a clear picture of what's going on. And there are times when you'll be reading a verse of Scripture and you'll, uh, or a story in the Bible, and all of a sudden your mind will be stirred and you go, hey, that reminds me of, and maybe you'll think of another Bible character, a Bible story. Maybe you'll think of a verse that you memorized. Maybe you'll think of something that relates to it or clarifies it somehow because God works in our minds as well as um, other ways that we think about. Verse 11 says, There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Okay, she's at least recognizing Yahweh. And in the days of your father, your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Now yeah, that doesn't sound so good were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, oh, there it is again, your father. What in the world? Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. So this woman who knew and remembered and is thinking back about those things that Daniel had done some 20-plus years earlier when he was a very young man, as a captive from Judah, she remembers all of that. What is this stuff about your father? Well, one of the things that we find in the Bible is that that term father can be used to denote an ancestor. For example, in 2 Kings, I told you I was reading there, 1538, it says that uh, Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of, look at this, David his father, and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. Well, David was not this man's father, but he was his ancestor. And so that's the idea. So Nebuchadnezzar, your ancestor, your grandfather, knew this guy and used this guy named Daniel, and uh, so she remembered all of that and uh, remembered in detail because she was impacted by it in a way that Belshazzar 
apparently had no clue. Now, this is why that we uh, think point number three, that Daniel had apparently, and, and I stress that word apparently, we don't know for sure, but it sure looks like it, apparently had been relegated to obscurity. You know, Daniel, just go over there, keep your quarters, we'll give you a check every once in a while and have somebody come check on you, uh, but don't call us, you know, we'll call you type of thing. And now that has gone on for so long, he's largely been forget, forgotten and nobody's calling on him for anything. Now, could it be that they didn't really think they needed him during that time? Because if the last dream that needed to be interpreted was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you remember that, and nothing else happens, God doesn't do anything else miraculous until this, well, I could kind of see why. We're fine with our own crew, our local group of astrologers, soothsayers, wise men, whatever. Uh, but now we've run into something else. Maybe that's why it happened. Maybe they didn't like him. He ate weird. He worshiped a weird God. He, his language was strange. His thoughts and ideas and morality were strange to them. And maybe they just kind of did it on purpose. I don't know. It doesn't say, but apparently he wasn't well known at this particular time and wasn't real active in the affairs of government. Okay? Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. So Daniel's works seem to have been long forgotten and in fact, Daniel's been long forgotten. And even it seems like his Babylonian name had been forgotten. You know, we don't tend to call him Belteshazzar. We call him Daniel. That's his Hebrew name. I don't know why we don't do that for the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We call them by their Babylonian names. But Daniel, we don't. But in this story, even the queen mother doesn't call him and say, hey, you need to go get Belteshazzar. Boy, he's something. She calls him Daniel. It appears even that his Babylonian name had been forgotten. Why would that be? Maybe there was a subtle hint of anti-Semitism, a little bit of racism to remind Daniel, I don't care what your name is from the king. I don't care what rank you had under the previous king. You're not one of us. You don't belong among us. You're not really a part of us. So um, the accolades given by Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel were certainly forgotten. And the proclamations of Nebuchadnezzar about God, about Yahweh God, were certainly forgotten. So now Daniel is being called out of obscurity. He's being brought back up. We could assume he's tanned, rested, and ready for this because he certainly doesn't miss a beat when he comes in and he carries himself well. He's got the authority of God. He knows exactly what to do. He's been down this road before. This isn't his first rodeo, we might say. And uh, nobody knows exactly what to do with him. And when Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall, how's the king going to take it? Well, when Daniel sees it, he doesn't worry about it because he knows the king it's not going to be around very long anyway. So 
Daniel's reputation and his testimony, number four, remained. Uh, apparently, Daniel didn't compromise. What I mean by compromise is over these two decades plus since we've heard from him, he didn't change anything. He didn't become more Babylonian-ish, you know. He didn't adopt some of their ways and some of their religions and all of that. In fact, they kept him out of the way and distinct, as we said before. And then the queen doesn't say, well, there was a guy who used to be good at that, but I know he's probably a little rusty now and he's not really good at all of that now. It appears that Daniel, during all of this time of being in obscurity, kept on walking with the Lord. Now he, Daniel, now pardon me, now let Daniel be called and he will give you the interpretation. She's really sure about it, isn't, isn't she? And uh, that tells you what you need to know about Daniel. He was not only faithful when he was in the spotlight. You know, some people, the only time they're really uh, seem to be on fire for God, enthusiastic about the Lord and uh, worshiping the Lord and demonstrative about it is when they're on the stage, when they're in the spotlight. Then you find out what they're doing when they're not in the spotlight. It can be very, very disappointing because uh, they're hypocritical, but not Daniel. And Daniel, it says he will give the interpretation. Daniel's lifestyle, his walk with God, and what people thought of him had not changed. Whether that's good or bad uh, is not really the point. Whether it was positive or negative in the eyes of the Babylonians is not really the point. He was ready to come in here. No scandal, no hypocrisy, nothing like that after all this time. He's still respected by her, even though he's been forgotten by most. And he's still a worshiper and a servant of God, even when no one cared or noticed. And that's a good thing to ask about you. Are you a worshiper of God only when people are looking? Now, you ought to be aware of the fact that people are looking and we have a testimony, but that shouldn't matter in terms of how we live. We ought to be the same privately as we are publicly. Our worship should be the same privately as it is when we are on the stage putting on a show, so to speak. And uh, that's what we find in Daniel, and that's what you find in most men of God. And so, just in conclusion, this says as much about Daniel as anything else that we've read. He's consistent even when it didn't seem to matter. Let me call attention to a couple of verses of Scripture. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this. So that whether I come and see you or, in absent, or am absent, I may see that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So whether you're popular or not, whether it's in style or not, in season, out of season, Paul would say to Timothy. And in this case, Paul is saying, I want you to be consistent whether I'm there or not. You, you've got to admit, it would be probably tempting for the Philippians to go, oh, Paul's coming. Let's get things cleaned up. Paul's coming. Let's get some things in order. Paul's coming. Let's change this and change this. Paul's coming. Let's make sure we put our best foot forward. And Paul said, no, I really don't want you to do that. I want you to be consistent whether I'm there or not. It's kind of what Daniel was. 2 Corinthians 
5, 9, and 10. We'll read a little Paul again. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, gulp, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's a judgment day, a day of appraisal, not condemnation, but a day of appraisal for all believers. And all those things that we've done privately that we pray no one ever finds out, those things that we did in the spotlight where we made ourselves to be bigger and badder and more faithful than we really were, that's all going to come out, all going to come out. And we need to remember that and just be faithful whether anybody's looking or not because God's always watching. I close with a story. Ray Steadman tells this. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for years and they were returning to New York City to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and they were afraid. And they discovered that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. Now, no one paid much attention to them, they watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage with passengers trying to catch a glimpse of the great and famous man. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these many years and have no one care a thing about us. Here this man comes back from a hunting trip, and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. You ever felt that way? That's pretty honest, isn't it? Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. It's not just. It's not fair. It doesn't seem right. Now, when the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president and the mayor and other dignitaries were there and the papers were full of the president's arrival, but no one noticed this missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living and survive in the city. And that night, the man's spirit broke, and he said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife replied, Why don't you go into the bedroom, what a wise woman here, and uh, tell that to the Lord. Well, a short time later, he came out from the bedroom, and now his face was completely different. His wife asked, Dear, what happened? The Lord settled it with me, he said. I told him how bitter I was that uh, the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one ever even met us as we returned home. And then I... And when I finished it, 
it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. That's why we ought to be faithful. We don't think that we're going to get everything we deserve here, do we? Jesus said, the world, if it hates you, it hated me. If the world ignored him, it'll ignore you. If the world betrayed him, it'll betray you. If the world didn't really satisfy the longings of his soul, it's not going to satisfy yours either. Christ was consumed with the glory of God and doing the will of the Father. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Jesus walked through with nail-scarred hands and feet into the presence of his Father? Well, get ready, because that's when you're going to come home, and that's when you're going to see your reward. But until then, be faithful unto death and serve your King. God bless you and thank you for your time. Thank you for watching this and listening to this. <coughs> bless you teachers as you uh, teach. And thank you for those of you who watch this to uh, keep up with your Sunday school class. I really do appreciate that. We'll see you next week. Thank you. And again, God bless.